I'm Haley. And I'm Katie. And you're listening to The Reference Desk, a podcast where two librarians take you down the rabbit hole of the topics that have bewitched us. So adjust the chain on your reading glasses, button up your favorite cardigan, and follow us punk-ass book jackies through the stacks to The Reference Desk. Hi, how are you? I'm I'm good. How are you? Okay. <laughs> Uh-oh. Well, okay, so we got our tax return, which mm-hmm. was great, and we desperately need a new washer and dryer. So I immediately bought one uh from Home Depot. But because I've obviously never spent that much money on anything, my bank was like, whoa, what are you doing? So <laughs> I had to like fight with them to approve the purchase. And by the time I did that, the delivery date had already been pushed back like three weeks. <gasps> I guess we're like snatching everything up. And um, so finally everything went through. Uh, and I just got an email saying that my bank canceled it again. And so Home Depot had to cancel my order. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, and of course it was President's Day weekend. They still had their sale going on. So everything yeah. was like $200 cheaper. So I don't know. I just have to fight oh. with people now. I was all excited. I've never had a new washer and dryer in my life. Oh, man. We had one once when we bought our house in Tampa. We bought like uh-huh. a brand new, super nice washer and dryer. And then for some stupid reason, we decided just to sell them with the house. (laughs) And every house that we've lived in since then is just, they've just been like the worst. Yeah. But it's so hard to like justify buying new ones if they still like function. Yes. (laughs) And if it like doesn't function great. Because it's like the most boring thing to spend a ton of money on. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting to the point where we have to like dry clothes like three times in the dryer mm-hmm. because they just won't dry. Yeah. And, it, and the washing machine doesn't spin all the time. So all kinds of fun stuff. Yay. <laughs> but other than that, everything has been pretty good. <laughs> good. <laughs> How about you? Um. Yeah. You know, different day, same covid lockdown true yeah oh it's getting so old (laughs) i'm so tired of it i know i keep telling dave i'm like i'm in the doldrums (laughs) that's that's all it is it's just the covid doldrums yeah that's a great way to put it (laughs) yeah so what have you been reading or watching, or <laughs> um, yeah, I mean that's pretty much like all there is to do right now. Yeah. Um. So Rory's newest favorite movie is The Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah. And we have watched kid. it at least once a day for like the past week. <laughs> and she calls it the day of the night of the Christmas. Oh my god. <laughs> That's the best. Oh, it's so cute. But yeah, I'm I I love that movie, but oh my god, children yeah. just ruin things. Oh my gosh. I am 
I'm so pumped though that she loves Halloween. Oh, oh my gosh, yeah. Awesome. She is wild about it. I think um, we all need to go to Salem. On yes, Halloween. absolutely. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, other than that, uh, let's see. I read um a a book called One to Watch by Kate Stamen London. And it's a novel about a quote-unquote plus-sized plus fashion blogger who is cast into, like, the fictional equivalent of The Bachelorette. Oh. And I was kind of expecting it to just be like, meh. But it was actually pretty good. And it brought up so many good points about, like, the way that women in society view um, our bodies. And it also had a lot of representation like it had asexual characters it had polyamorous characters um and i actually enjoyed it it was it was like a fun like beach read type of book but actually with some depth cool um, and the author was the lead digital writer on hillary clinton's presidential campaign oh wow and yeah and this was the first novel that she wrote so it was kind of cool very, very cool yeah. And then like in the same arena, my new favorite podcast is called Maintenance Phase. Ooh. Um, and it's hosted by Aubrey Gordon, who uh is the incredible author behind the pseudonym Your Fat Friend, and Michael Hobbs, who's a reporter for Huff Post, and he has another podcast called You're Wrong About. Um, in each episode, I like they've, I've heard about that one. Yeah, it's super popular. Yeah. <laughs> um, but each episode, they do like a deep dive into like a wellness or diet topic. And they just like poke holes in all of it because it's all garbage. Um, <laughs> and they're they're so funny. And it's my favorite episodes so far have been um, they did one on the president's physical fitness test. Do you remember oh that <laughs> nightmare? Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes. Yeah. I enjoyed most of it, to be honest. Just well, no. Let me say I enjoyed the flexibility part of it, where you had to like line up with that blue box. Yeah. Right, and then like reach your arms out as far as they would go. I loved it because my legs were so short. So I always went the farthest. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I like, hated it so because flexible. I was so tall. <laughs> I was like struggling to even reach the end of the box. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, so yeah, they, they did a really great episode about that. Um, and then they did another one. Uh, another recent one was uh, The Biggest Loser. Remember that uh -huh. TV show? <laughs> Oh, yeah. They talked about, like, how just horrendous that was. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then the last one that they did was Dr. Oz. Yeah. Which, yeah. So, so it's, it's fun. <laughs> it's, it's an important industry to just rip apart. And I love that they're doing it. Absolutely. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah. And Aubrey Gordon also just published a book called um, What We Don't Talk About When We Talk About Fat. Uh, which is, I am definitely on the wait list for at the library. Uh, but yeah, what about you? So I've just been reading, you know, more Jefferson Cup books that I'm not allowed <laughs> to talk about. So, <laughs> so I've been, you know, doing some podcasting. Also, um, Finn and I listen to Julie Andrews' podcast every morning when I drop them off um, like when we're in the car. 
It is so sweet and just, oh, it's lovely. Um, the last episode we listened to, um, they had Jacqueline Woodson on and she Ooh. read her picture book, um, The Day You Begin, which is, oh, it's beautiful. Oh, I love that book. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, oh, it's been so good. And then when I'm not in the car with Finn, I have been listening to Ghost in the Burbs <laughs> podcast. <laughs> yes. I love it. It's so well-written. Um, it really is. She is she's a super gifted writer. Yeah, definitely. So that's that's what I've been doing. And then yeah, lots of Jefferson Cup books. Oh I got God. three more today. And I was like, what? This you're still over. getting new ones? <laughs> yes. It's this COVID's is ridiculous. Fault. <laughs> oh, I know. Have they moved like the like the date back for when you have to have them all read by? No, not oh, that I okay. know of. <laughs> okay, that seems fair. Yeah, the one uh, one of the ones I got today was you know it's a YA book, um, so it's long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just trying to get through them. Do you get any time at work to like read these books? Yeah. Okay. Um, kind of. Yeah. So I love that there's always this misconception about um, librarians and we just get to read all day, you know? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure you've gotten that plenty of times before. And we're normally actually not allowed to read at work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, we're not allowed to. But um, since I am on the committee, so it's technically work, I am allowed to, to read some of the stuff. Well, that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah. My grandma was a librarian and uh, she told me that her boss always told her the most important part of your job is knowing like what kids want to read. Um, so she let her read at work. Like that's whenever, amazing. That <laughs> whenever so she sense. wanted. <laughs> that's, I mean, it makes sense. If you want to be good at reader's sure. advisory, you have to read. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so she read the first Harry Potter book all at work and immediately <laughs> sent me a copy and was like, you have to read this. Oh, my grandma gave me Harry Potter too. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's how Aww. I got into Harry Potter. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> so I have also been doing a lot of bread baking again, uh-huh. just constantly doing it. And I'm loving the process so, so much. A lot of the time I'm actually listening to music <laughs> and when I'm not listening to show tunes or Broadway music, I'm usually listening to classic rock when I'm baking or cooking. Um, most especially Fleetwood Mac music. Yes. Fleetwood Mac. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I grew up listening to classic rock. It just kind of stuck with me. Um, And I hate that I have to clarify this, but when I'm talking about classic rock, I'm talking about like anything older than the 1990s. I, I put on a classic rock playlist the other day from Spotify and I was inundated with songs by the Foo Fighters and Kings of Leon. (laughs) (laughs) No. Are we are we that old? Oh my gosh. No. <laughs> like, is that yeah. classic rock? Of now? Leon was like when we were in college. I know. <laughs> Which oh, was 10 years man. ago. I know. I know. On my time <laughs> hop the other day, uh, it came up that it was like eleven years ago 
you and I were seeing Manchester Orchestra in Orlando at the House oh. of Blues. Oh, that was so fun. It was. Oh. Yeah. Oh. But yeah, so classic rock, like real classic rock. <laughs> um, but my topic this week combines uh, classic rock with something else that I am very passionate about, which is all things spooky and supernatural. <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, so the topic that I have been bewitched with since really I was in middle school is the world of rock and roll myths, legends, and curses. Ooh, this yeah. is going to be so fun. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was in high school, um, my mom's coworker actually gave me a book called Take a Walk on the Dark Side. Rock and Roll's Myths, Curses, and Legends. And <laughs> I read it like a hundred times. I was completely fascinated. Um, I just continued to come back to it. And so much so that I remember uh, in college, we had to take a public speaking class. Were we in the same public speaking class? No, I didn't no, yeah. take public speaking because <laughs> I was ah! in honors college. <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. Yeah, I had to take it and it sucked. Um, but we had to give a uh, five minute speech on a topic that we were an expert on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I chose to talk about the theory that Paul McCartney died and was replaced by a double. <laughs> <laughs> which is in this book. (laughs) So I don't know if I, you know, believe in any of these, but they're just really fun to think about um, Mm -hmm. and to look for clues and mysteries. And there are a lot of strange coincidences in rock and roll history. Um, So I highly, highly recommend this book. It's by R. Gary Patterson. It might be a little hard to find in your library. Um, It was published in 2004. It wasn't, you know, a huge hit success. So, I mean, it's not in my library um, or any of the libraries around me. Um, But (laughs) plug, 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 if you would like to purchase this book, (laughs) we will have a link for it along with all of the books we talk about on the podcast through bookshop.org. And uh, so you can check the website for that link. And um, essentially all of the information that I got for this episode came from this book. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So Patterson starts his book with a question. And that question is, who created rock and roll? Um, It's been heavily debated. Uh, Many people think that blues legend Robert Johnson was the one who first created the music. Um, There are certainly traces uh, in rock music from gospel music in Southern backwoods churches. But uh, one thing is very clear, and that is rock has certainly had a very turbulent history. There have been close calls, plane crashes, heavy drug use, mysterious deaths, just to name a few. Um, and so I think the Logical place to start on our journey through this weird rock and roll history is the legend of Robert Johnson and his pact with the devil at the crossroads. Ooh. Yeah. I'm so excited. <laughs> so Robert Johnson was probably born in Hazelhurst, Mississippi on May 8th, 1911. 
And I say maybe because Robert was somewhat of an enigma until kind of recently. Um, There wasn't much factual information written about him. In um, 2019, Netflix released a collection of really amazing music documentaries called Remastered. And um, one of the episodes focuses only on Robert Johnson. And so some of the um, music historians and musicians in that documentary were actually able to track down a lot of information on the blues legend. Um, So the book, Take a Walk on the Dark Side, was published in 2004. So, you know, Patterson kind of used the information that he had available at the time. Mm -hmm. So in his book, Patterson explains that Robert Johnson's legal father Charles Dodds Jr. had deserted his mother to live with his mistress in Tennessee. Um, But the Netflix documentary actually um, interviewed a bunch of locals from Hazelhurst, Mississippi, and they all said that Robert Johnson's legal father um, was actually a wealthy carpenter and furniture maker who was chased out of town by a group of angry white men who did not like the wealth and success that he was acquiring. Okay. So um, either way, Robert's actual father is thought to be a farm worker named Noah Johnson with whom his mother, Julie Ann Majors had an affair. And I'm only calling it a affair because she was technically legally married to Charles Dodds at the time, but you know, no judgment. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he was, he was gone. So, um, Robert's mother did remarry to a local sharecropper who, according to Robert's grandson, was abusive to Robert. And, of course, sharecropping, I mean, it was just a horrible, demanding job, kind Mm -hmm. of, in which mostly former enslaved people would rent farms from wealthy white landowners. They would work the farms um, and then return a portion of the crops to the landowners in lieu of making any wage. Okay. So, yeah. So Robert, you know, he hated that life. He did not want anything to do with it. He wanted to get as far away from it as he could. And he thought maybe music would be the answer. Um, Many bluesmen at the time got their start playing in fields and on plantations of the South. So Robert would have been around music. Um, In the documentary, um, musician Taj Mahal, which is a fun name, (laughs) he said that music served as a balm for people who were in bondage and it gave you a way out. You play the music and you could be outside of yourself. You know, you could take everybody else out. Mm. Um, I know. <laughs> so in order to make any money at all, the blues musician, blah, 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 blah. I'm just too amped tonight. I don't know what's happening. My goodness. I love it. Make him drink more tea. <laughs> okay. So in order to make any money at all, the blues musician, why can't I say that? <laughs> The blues musicians Mm -hmm. attempted to play anywhere and everywhere they could, uh, most commonly on street corners and in juke joints. So 
Juke joints arose out of a need for um, plantation workers and sharecroppers to let off steam after a hard work week, especially since the Jim Crow laws of the time would not allow them into white establishments. Um, Katrina Hazard Gordon wrote a book called Jukin, The Rise of Social Dance Formations in African-American Culture. And she explains that juke joints were set up on the outskirts of town. They were often in ramshackle abandoned buildings or in private houses. And they offered food, drink, dancing, and gambling. Um, Many of the owners made extra money selling either groceries or moonshine to patrons. um, And they also provided cheap room and board. Okay. So blues musicians. <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with this word? This is going to be a bad episode because I say that word a lot. <laughs> Let's see. Is, the, is there like a synonym we can come up with for musicians? <laughs> <clears throat> <So clears throat> these blues musicians would run the juke circuit going from plantation to plantation or from farm to farm playing in these juke joints. And Robert began going to these juke joints and playing harmonica. Um, He attempted to play the guitar, but he was described as a novice or mediocre player at best. Mm, Me too. (laughs) Same. Sip. Robert was only 18 when he started going to these juke joints. And it was during this time that he met and fell in love with Virginia Travis, who was 15. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. They lied about their age in order to get married. And um, Robert was so in love, he offered to quit music and to try and live a more stable life to take care of Virginia. Um, Of course, traveling from juke joint to juke joint was extremely dangerous as a black man. I mean, traveling at all was extremely dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, There were actually more lynchings in the Mississippi Delta than anywhere else in the South. Um, So it was a very dangerous place to be a black man. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And also, um, Baptist preachers had begun declaring blues music as being from the devil. So in the documentary, um, musician Terry Bean, who goes by harmonica, which is super fun, um, he said that it might have been because the Baptist preachers were working hard every Sunday, not making any money. Meanwhile, the people they were trying to preach to were hanging out at these juke joints, dancing and drinking and making money through gambling all night. So he alleges there might have been a little bit of jealousy. And so they told their congregations that, you know, um, they warned them against blues music. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) So, but Robert Johnson was in love. He wanted to take care of his new wife. So he pledged to leave the life behind. Um, He and Virginia moved uh, onto a farm so he could get a job as a sharecropper. And soon Virginia became pregnant. 
Um, when she was about eight months along, she decided that she wanted to go home to have her baby at her parents' house. And um, so Robert sent her along and he was going to follow her. He was going to come shortly. Um, he decided he wanted to travel by train to meet her there because he wanted to kind of uh, stop at some of his old haunting grounds and uh, play some music at some juke joints along the way. So okay, that's what but, he did. Yeah. <laughs> there's a baby on the way, Robert. I know. Oh, so he does. He stops. He plays some music. And eventually he does make his way to the Travis family home. Unfortunately, um, Virginia and her newborn had died during childbirth. Oh, and so no. they were, yeah, they were both already buried by the time he got there. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's so, so, of course, Robert wasn't the same after that. Um, Virginia's family blamed him for her death. They were angry that he hadn't, uh, that he had, you know, taken his time getting there. He hadn't been there. He was out playing the devil's music while, you know, their daughter was giving birth. What is a man in the early 1900s possibly <laughs> going to do to assist in childbirth? <laughs> They're not even allowed in the room. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yeah. But um but Robert just kind of leaned into it. He decided that he was only going to focus on his music and the lifestyle that that entailed. And so he went back on the road. He started following um a popular pair of blues musicians. I did it. Um who <laughs> who uh were uh, um they were working working they were working they the circuit work <laughs> <laughs> oh they were working the circuit uh their names were sun house and willie brown and so um again robert was not a good guitar player <laughs> like at all so in fact when the musicians were taking a break robert would pick up the guitar and start playing and uh in an interview with Sun House, he said that uh, <laughs> he trying to play it and just be noising the people, you know, and the folks, they'd come out and say, why don't some of y'all go down and make that boy put that thing down? He running us crazy. <laughs> so, so he was you know, real clearly, bad. Real bad. Not a good <laughs> endorsement from the crowd. No. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, Sunhouse and the other musicians, they would stop him and not let him play, mostly because they didn't want him to break any of their strings or damage their guitars because they were expensive. Mm -hmm. So um, Robert Johnson left one night saying he would be back and he would show them all. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah. And he disappears from the Delta region. And nobody knows where he went. He was gone for one year. Um, when he returns, it's the early 1930s. He shows up in a juke joint where Sunhouse and Willie Brown are playing. And he begs them, just he says, Get me a, give me a chance. Let me go up on stage and play, and I'll show you something. Um, he just continuously begs them. And finally, they're like, okay, fine. Just give him a chance. He had added a seventh string to his guitar, and 
when, yeah, when he got up on stage and started playing, they were completely blown away. He played so well and so fast. He was doing tricks that are, you know, musically beyond anything they had ever seen or could do themselves. And these are seasoned musicians. Wow. So, yeah, he's just amazing. Okay, I'm starting to feel really <laughs> bad about the fact that we're coming up on our one-year anniversary of being in lockdown, and I have nothing to show for it. And this man went away for a year and became, like, the best guitar player in the world. Well, Katie, I think that's because I don't think that you have made a pact with the devil. So, well, can you why you're tell not me a- how? <laughs> I can, yes. Okay. So, um, <laughs> his playing uh, led many people to start whispering that he must have sold his soul to the devil in order to play that well. Uh, musician Taj Mahal on the documentary, he said, he did something. You don't just go away and come back playing like that. So, the legend goes that Robert went out to the crossroads, armed with his guitar and a black cat bone. He played his guitar until he was approached by a big, dark man. He got down on his knees and handed the guitar over to the man, who then tuned the guitar for Robert. And the man said, if you take this guitar, you will be the greatest player the world has ever seen, but you will owe me your soul. And it said that Robert Johnson sold his soul to the devil that night. Spooky. Man. (laughs) So it would seem that a lot of Robert's lyrics actually kind of support this myth. He had songs like Crossroads Blues, Hellhound on My Trail, Me and the Devil, um, And they are riddled with occult-sounding lyrics and a lot of references to hoodoo imagery. Um, Hoodoo is a mix of spiritual practices that originally was created by Africans enslaved in North America. And it took traditional African religions and uh, especially in the American South incorporated it with European folklore and also um, the indigenous people's root and plant knowledge. Okay. So that's hoodoo. Kind of similar to voodoo, but they're not the same. So Robert essentially got his wish. He was so well-known and well-loved in the Mississippi Delta for his amazing musical ability. But tragedy found Johnson again and again. So whether that is due to his lifestyle of, you know, drinking, smoking, he had a notorious love of the ladies, uh, or because, you know, the devil had finally caught up with him, uh, it is certain that he had a very hard, very short life. Robert continued playing music in juke joints, hopping trains to get to his destinations, He did get at least one more girl pregnant, and I say girl because she was a girl. She was under 18, Um, and uh, her family refused to let Robert be a part of her or their son's life. 
um, because they disapproved of his lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But the family maintains that he would often send the boy money from time to time. So he was at least trying, you know, to okay. to okay. do right a little bit. Yeah. Complicated, um, complicated uh, situation. Yeah. But this was another love of his life and child that were taken from him. Yeah. Um, so it's just, you know, one tragedy after another. Mm-hmm. So during his time while he's working these juke joints, he had taken up with either the wife or the girlfriend of one of the owners of the juke joints. Um, that sounds risky. Which, yep. Uh, so <laughs> one night he was there at that juke joint drinking with a bunch of his friends and fellow musicians uh, when he was given a bottle of whiskey with an open seal. No, 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 no. I tell you, yep, if he was a woman, he would know not to take that. (laughs) That is just what I was going to say. Right? (laughs) That that, um, do not take a drink that has been offered to you unless you know, like, the person's coming from and trust them. Absolutely. you will be murdered if you stop at a rest area at night as a female alone. Those are like yes. the two things that were drilled into me from a young age. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. But even Robert's friends were like, don't drink that. Give yes. that back. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Um, but he was adamant. This was a $7 bottle of whiskey, which in today's currency was roughly a hundred dollars. So Woo! pretty pricey. Yeah. Pricey bottle of whiskey. And he was not going to waste it. So, he drinks it and becomes violently ill. Mm. And after about two or three days of just excruciating pain, Robert Donson died from drinking poisoned whiskey. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He was only 27 years old. What? Yep. 27. Wow. (laughs) That's an important number. Okay. All right, 27. <laughs> 27. So uh, Robert, when he died, he was just on the brink of what could have been national stardom. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a famed talent scout named John Hammond who had listened to some of his recordings. And uh, he was convinced that Johnson was the greatest primitive blues player of all time. And so Hammond, he was putting together a concert at Carnegie Hall that honored all of these Southern blues players, and he wanted Johnson to play in it. So he went down to Mississippi searching for Robert Johnson. They went to juke joint after juke joint in the Mississippi Delta, not knowing that Robert had died a few weeks earlier. Wow. Yeah. So he was just like right on the verge of... (sighs) Like yeah. crazy stardom. Yeah. But he he left a large legacy in his wake. His music created the groundwork for modern blues and rock. Um, he inspired the likes of Keith Richards, Bonnie Raitt, members of Led Zeppelin. Um, Eric Clapton gave Robert Johnson credit for him even becoming a musician at all. Hmm. And uh, so his legacy... <laughs> Unfortunately, stretched beyond music 
because he was unwillingly the first member of a special club in which the only way to join was to die at the age of 27. So (laughs) next up is the 27 club or the curse of 27. So um, Dave asked me earlier today, he was trying to figure out someone's age and he was like, you were born in 88, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, how old are you? (laughs) And I (laughs) like, I couldn't remember for a minute. (laughs) Um, I I was like, I I think 32. (laughs) It's it's real scary. Forgetting. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Once once you get past thirty, apparently, it stall it doesn't matter. I know I'm I'm constantly. Am I thirty three? Am I thirty four? When did I turn thirty three? I don't remember. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we made it past twenty seven. So so congrats. that's a good thing. Because this sounds <laughs> like it's going to be a club that uh, I don't want to be a part of. No, you definitely don't. Um, <laughs> so. There has been a number of musical giants who died in the full bloom of their youth. So in a two-year period, beginning on July 3rd, 1969, five major rock stars died at the age of 27. What? Yes, five in two years. Wow. Mm-hmm. So the first after Johnson was Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. Um, Brian had just recently been replaced in the stone. So he was not uh, part of the band anymore. Um, and he was actively trying to form his own band so he could still play music. Uh, his friends at the time said that he was actually pretty happy and in good spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, it was rumored that John Lennon and Jimi Hendrix were considering joining his band. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So he, you know, he was feeling good about it. Um, He had just purchased a home in England called Cotchford Farm, which had actually been owned previously by A.A. Milne. And he wrote Winnie the Pooh there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And uh, despite him being in such good spirits, um, You know, Jones also fell into the typical lifestyle of a rock star. Mm -hmm. Um, And a friend became very worried about him and just had this unnerving feeling that something was not right with Jones. So she consulted a Chinese divination book called the I Ching and uh, received a disturbing premonition. And that was death by water. So she was so freaked out. She shared this information with Mick Jagger, um, who was another, you know, founding member of the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. And he admitted he was also kind of worried about Jones. So he passed along the message to him. He gave him a call. Um, Unfortunately, the warning was not enough because Jones would die just two weeks later. Was it water related? Uh huh. <laughs> oh, tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so Jones was throwing a small party with a few close friends at his home, and at around ten thirty, he told everyone that he was going to go for a swim in the pool. 
And apparently another friend who was there warned him not to do this. She said he had been drinking vodka, taking downers, and she didn't think swimming was maybe the best idea. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. But he didn't listen. So two friends and his girlfriend, Anna, joined him in the pool. um, But the two friends quickly went back into the house and – Uh, Jones ended up turning up the temperature in the pool to 80 degrees. Okay. And um, shortly after that, Anna went inside to answer the phone. And when she came back 10 minutes later, Jones was floating unresponsive in the pool. Oh, no. Yeah. So he was, you know, immediately pulled out from the pool. Mm -hmm. um, And Anna swore that she had felt a pulse. Um, but he was pronounced dead on arrival when he got to the hospital. Wow. So the coroner listed the death as drowning um, and said that the mix of alcohol and drugs in his system coupled with the warm water could have put him in a coma, causing the drowning. Um, but there's some that say, how could that have happened in 10 minutes? But. So we don't know. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I could see that. I don't yeah. know. I I feel like I've been drunk enough in my life where if you put me in some warm water, I'd be like, oh, sleepy. <laughs> yes, it, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, it is also possible that he might have suffered an asthma attack. He was known to have um, pretty bad asthma. Um, but there are some. Sorry. No, I mean, like, I know, like, 10 minutes kind of sounds like a short amount of time, but also, like, on the other hand, that could, that's like an eternity that things could, yeah, happen if you can't in. breathe, yeah, yeah, so much could happen. There are, of course, some that think he may have been murdered. Um, Keith Richards, who was there that evening, he said, Some very weird things happened that night Brian died. There were people there that suddenly disappeared. So. (laughs) Uh, Keith, we're going to need a little bit more. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So while we may never know exactly what happened to Jones, we we do know he was the first to join Robert Johnson in the 27 Club because he was 27. Wow. Okay. So, Yeah. After his death, um, Pete Townsend from The Who wrote a poem in The Times called A Normal Day for Brian, A Man Who Died Every Day. And Jim Morrison also wrote a poem for Jones titled Ode to L.A. While Thinking of Brian Jones Deceased. Mm. Um, And Jimi Hendrix dedicated a song to Jones on TV. The later two would become members of the club in just a few years. <gasps> Haley is just setting them up and knocking them down. <laughs> so the next member to join the club was Al Wilson, also known as Blind Owl. And he was in the band Canned Heat. He died of an overdose on September 3rd, 1970. Um, But later, his death was kind of upstaged because later that month, Jimi Hendrix, legendary guitar player, died in London. Yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it. Yeah. 
So according to Patterson, no one has ever played guitar like Jimi Hendrix. Um, Hendrix actually idolized Robert Johnson. And um, according to author Jerry Spangler, the Jimi Hendrix-Robert Johnson parallel is undeniably spooky. Both were hailed as guitar legends. Both were addicted to fame and booze. Both were possessed by wanderlust. Both died at 27 before their genius had fully blossomed. And both had resigned themselves to the belief that they were going to hell. And both wrote extensively about it. Wow. Yeah. So in an interview a few years before his death, Hendrix told a reporter that I've been dead for a long time. I don't think I will live to see 28. He was right. Wow. Wow. There's so many weird coincidences that could probably just be coincidences. Of course, of course. But it's it's so fun to string them together and just get with it. Um, Also, side note, hearing you say spooky, Uh I finally got Dave to agree to watch Shit's Creek with me. And we just watched the episode where Moira is trying to find her nudes <laughs> on the internet. And she t- she's telling Stevie to take nudes. And she's like, you might think I'm too spooky. <laughs> and Dave was like, immediately was like, I can 100% see Haley saying that. <laughs> <laughs> too, too spooky oh man fantastic fantastic oh goodness <laughs> okay back to death okay um <laughs> so on the night of september 16th 1970 jimmy was having trouble sleeping so he took nine sleeping pills that uh, he had taken from his girlfriend, Monica Daneman. Uh, and when Monica woke the next morning, she realized that Jimmy had vomited in his sleep and she was having trouble waking him. Oh, gosh. so I know. Mm. Um, she, worried. She called their friend, Eric Burden, who is in the band, the animals. Who uh, does immediately is Eric t- a physician? I know that's <laughs> he immediately told her call the paramedic. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so when the ambulance arrived, it arrived within minutes. Um. And the paramedics, you know, immediately started CPR. They told Monica that Hendrix was definitely still alive, and they rushed him to the hospital, but he was pronounced dead on arrival. Um. Wow, can you imagine being an EMT and showing up and it's Jimmy fucking Hendrix? (laughs) Seriously. Oh, wow. The amount of pressure. Yes. Wow. I'm wondering if that's maybe why they told her that he was still alive when if he wasn't. I don't know. Maybe he was still alive. Maybe. Yeah. Um, his cause of death was listed as asphyxiation due to severe barbiturate intoxication, and he had inhaled his vomit in his sleep, and so he essentially drowned in his own vomit. Oh, I remember I getting that lesson before college, too. Yes. <laughs> Turn them on their side. Their side. Yes, exactly. Ugh. 
Um, unfortunately, you know, the public thought his death was an overdose, which I mean, I guess kind of, but they were convinced, you know, he was addicted to heroin and, you know, doing all of these drugs when in reality, all of his friends maintain that he really only, you know, smoked marijuana and he occasionally experimented with LSD, but he did not do any other hard drugs. Hmm. Um, And uh, the coroner's report listed no other, like, you know, needle marks or anything like that. So that's probably true. Mm -hmm. Um, But Eric Burden, who uh, Monica had called, he made a statement to the press that said he thought Jimmy had died of suicide. And um, Jimmy had written a five-page poem on the day of his death. And the final line of the poem says the story of life is hello and goodbye until we meet again. So that was why he thought shit. Yeah. Um, there are some who think Jimmy was murdered. Um, a few days before his death, Jimmy was telling friends that he had been forcibly kidnapped, forced into a car and driven to a deserted building uh, in that he had feared for his life until three members of his management team showed up and rescued him. What? So, yeah. Um, and apparently his manager, Michael Jeffrey, had a million-dollar life insurance policy on Jimmy, and he was the sole beneficiary of it. That's kind of strange. Uh, yup. And Monica, his girlfriend, claimed that Jimmy had received threatening phone calls from Michael in the weeks leading up to his death. Hmm. Um, Michael also made millions after Jimmy died by releasing some previously unreleased music. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, there's some conspiracy theories involving Jimmy's death. Uh, one centers around the FBI, who allegedly had been keeping tabs on Jimmy as part of, you know, the counterculture, um, as well as his involvement with the Black Panther Party and his opposition to the Vietnam War. But conspiracy theories, who knows? Right. <laughs> Oddly, though, Jimmy died at 27, Mm -hmm. was buried in Greenwood Memorial Park. His music idol, Robert Johnson, had died at the same age decades later in Greenwood, Mississippi. (laughs) So, yeah. Spinning the web. Um, (laughs) Two weeks. Yay. (sighs) It's so weird how all of it fits together. And this yeah. was like me in high school. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. All of these things. <laughs> Someone listen to me. <laughs> Here's some more weird stuff. So two weeks later, uh, blues singer Janis Joplin joined the club after dying of an overdose at 27. Um, Janice is, uh, you know, another amazing musician who had a very rough life. She left home at the age of 17, went to California to try to make it as a singer, but returned home a year later. Um, and because people are absolutely horrible, Janet, Janet, <sighs> Janice had, um, a hard time in high school. She was called pig face. And just all kinds of mean names. Um, the assholes at her college voted her ugliest man on campus. What the like, fuck? Just, 
seriously, people are just terrible. Um, and Have so it's kind of no wonder her? that seriously, she is so good. <sighs> but she, you know, turned to alcohol to deal with all the bullying and rejection. Um, and when that wasn't enough, she became addicted to heroin. Um, but she, oh, she had an absolutely amazing voice. She sang in the style of her blues idols, Bessie Smith and Billie Holiday. Um, she joined the band Big Brother and the Holding Company as their lead vocalist. But in 1969, she started her own band called Cosmic Blues Band. And she was really critically acclaimed and loved for her live masterful performances. Um, and so she was experiencing a lot of success with this band. She was set to marry her new boyfriend, Seth Morgan. Um, she had played Woodstock. Five of her singles had hit the Billboard Hot 100. Um, but though her fans loved her, critics claimed that Janice could not translate the same emotion and energy of her live shows onto her recorded music. And so she, you know, again, turned to heroin to help her cope with this perceived rejection that she was feeling. Um, I mean, who can? Like, anyone yeah. who's ever seen live music knows that, like, it's, it, you can't capture it. No. It's, what a it's just dumb criticism. That, I know. Gosh. Uh, damn the man. I know. <laughs> So unfortunately, while she was in the middle of recording an album that she was actually really proud of, uh, Janice went to her hotel room to mainline heroin before recording uh, final vocals for the song Buried Alive in the Blues. The song was never completed because Janice overdosed on heroin and she was dead at 27. Damn. I know. This is all still within like a year. <laughs> oh my gosh. So just on a lighthearted note, as you're as you're talking about Janice Joplin and then said Janet, have you seen that 30 <laughs> the 30 Rock? No. Where, um, oh, I mean I've seen 30 Rock. I don't remember. Where um Jenna gets cast as Janice Joplin in like her her like a movie about her life. Oh yeah, but, but then like it gets sold, so her name like keeps changing. So then it's like Janet Janet Jorper, and and, and it ends up being ends up being like Jackie Jorp Jump. <laughs> oh man, oh, that was a good show. Yes, it watch was. Yeah. <laughs> Jackie Jorp job. <laughs> she starred in the Rurger. The Rurger. <laughs> oh, all right. So I'm sorry. There's more death. I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> it's just all death. <laughs> That's the coincidence. Death. <laughs> Everyone uh, dies <laughs> at a young, tragic age. Seriously. Oh. All right. On to (laughs) 
James Douglas Morrison, most commonly known as Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors, uh, was apparently in Miami, Florida, standing trial for an obscenity charge when he heard of the death of Jimi Hendrix. And allegedly, he turned to his friend and asked, does anyone believe in omens? Um, a few weeks later, when he heard that Janis Joplin died, Morrison was out drinking with friends and said, you're drinking with number three. <gasps> so. What? Yeah. <laughs> yep. So, like... Everyone in this club, you know, Morrison is such an interesting character. Um, some claim that Morrison was actually a shaman. Uh, he mentions in a few of his songs uh, an experience he had when he was only four. And he was driving with his parents through the desert when they came across a car accident involving a group of Native American workers. Mm -hmm. And Morrison claimed that he was able to see the spirits of two of these Native Americans and that they were, quote, just running around freaking out. And they leaped into my soul <gasps> and they are still there. Wow. So, he was four. Hey. Yeah. All right. He often said that he felt the dying men's spirit inhabit his own body and they became his spiritual guides. Mm. Um, Morrison was actually born into a military family, but he became a nonconformist pretty quickly. Um, he was said to have an IQ of 149. Mm. Which I think is really high. <laughs> I forgot to look that up, but that's, I think it's high. That's pretty high. So I know. Okay, I know this is this is the worst reference ever. But whenever I think of like IQ scores, I think about in the movie Forrest Gump when the mom's <laughs> meeting with the principal and she and oh, he's yeah. like, Mrs. Gump, your boy has an IQ. It's like seventy something. Yeah, <laughs> and that's like, God, it's all that. That's like my reference point for IQ. Forrest Gump level, Mrs. Gump. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, <laughs> yeah, that's that's bad. That's bad. That's really bad. Seeing that, like, I I taught gifted kids for like five years of my career, and, <laughs> and they love to talk mm. about their IQ scores. And I was always like, oh, really? Well, that's like double what Forrest Gump's was. So I guess that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Morrison was double for a scump and uh, he, he, <laughs> he was a voracious reader. Apparently in high school, he was reading and using such like esoteric texts in his papers that his English teacher thought that he was making them up. Ooh. And so she, a coworker was going to the library of Congress. And so she asked him to look up these titles <gasps> to see if they actually existed. What? So, yeah. Oh she, she later said, I suspected he was making them up as they were English books on 16th and 17th century demonology. I'd never heard of them, but they existed. And I'm convinced. From the, <laughs> yeah. I'm convinced from the paper he wrote that he had read them and the library of Congress would have been his only source. <laughs> oh, okay. His teacher was real committed to catching him. Yes. Fly. 
She was. <laughs> wow, she really did not like him. <laughs> I'm going to check the Library of Congress. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, he also read a lot of Nietzsche and Kerouac and Ginsburg and Dylan Thomas and... Uh, he followed the teachings of a young 19th century French poet, Rimbaud. And uh, based on Rimbaud's teachings, Morrison claimed that when you arrange to derange the normal balance of your senses, whether you do it with alcohol, lack of sleep, or with starvation, or whether you do it with drugs, you not only add to the body of your knowledge, but you jar the body of knowledge so that you are looking out in a different way. And this is what a young poet must really do. Mm. So that's how he lived his life. He was in a constant quest for experience and excess. And uh, he went to UCLA to study filmmaking. Um, And it was there that he met Ray Manzarek, who would put – Morrison's poetry to music, and that's how they formed The Doors. Hmm. Um, so according to Morrison's friends, he you know, wanted to push everything to the limits, um, and that he had a constant death wish, is how they described him. Um, after massive success with The Doors over several years, Morrison moved to Paris to concentrate solely on his poetry. Uh, and one night he went to a movie with his long-term companion, Pamela Corson. I've seen some call her girlfriend and some say that they were married. Mm-hmm. So I'm not positive if they ever did actually get married, but I feel like they were together so long. It was essentially common law at that time. Okay. So yeah, she, uh, so they went out to a movie, uh, when they returned to their apartment, Morrison was complaining of chest pains. But he had been to the doctor earlier for a respiratory infection. So he thought maybe that was just part of it. Um, unfortunately, Pam found Morrison's body in the tub the next morning. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The official cause of death was heart attack. So, yeah. Wow. 27. Um, Morrison. 27. He was buried in historic Père Lachaise Cemetery um, and also buried there is Chopin, Oscar Wilde, and Edith Piaf. Uh, Morrison had actually visited the cemetery three days before his <gasps> so. Wow. So I have been to Père Lachaise Cemetery and oh my I have been to Jim Morrison's grave. Have you? Yes. So I, I'll oh have to, goodness. um, I'll have to send you a picture of that. Yes. Um, but oh yeah. God. So Great. my grandma took me to Paris when I was sixteen for uh, yeah. like a birthday gift, and you know, sixteen, I was like, oh, I was so cool and like angsty, <laughs> and I had no fucking clue really who Jim Morrison or the Doors were, but I was like, I have got to see Jim Morrison's grave. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that's yeah. so fun. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that is really cool. And I was with my grandma, and this 
this French guy like approached us in the cemetery and was like, I will show you all of the graves that you want to see. And like offered to be <laughs> our tour guide. Huh. Um, <laughs> my, my grandma was terrified that he was like leading us to our death. And she had this, <laughs> she had this, this like personal alarm that she wore the entire time we were in Paris. And the whole oh way gosh. through this cemetery, she has one hand, on the alarm and one hand on the cord like she's just ready to like yank that sucker apart oh my god so that's that's my memory of jim morrison's grave is this this french guy taking a picture of me while my grandma stands behind him with her a personal alarm ready to pull (laughs) oh my gosh that's fantastic (laughs) so now should i ever make it back there i will have a greater appreciation oh goodness unfortunately membership in the club did not end with jim morrison i'm sorry it's not gonna get any better (laughs) wow i'm i'm feeling real grateful that i'm in my 30s and not a rock star right now (laughs) you made it um In 1973, a keyboardist for the Grateful Dead, Ron McKernan, died at 27 due to complications from liver disease, which he had to have been living real hard to get liver disease before 27. Yeah. Wow. Um, Yeah. And then Pete Ham from Badfinger died of suicide at the age of 27 in 1975. Um. Roger Lee Durham from the band Bloodstone. He joined the club on uh, October or in October of 1973, along with Chris Bell of um, the band Big Star and Dennis Dale Boone of the band The Minutemen, who both died in car accidents at the age of 27. Um, And then, you know, the next rock superstar to join the club was lead vocalist of Nirvana, Kurt Cobain. Mm-hmm. Um, he, of course, you know, the official cause of death for Cobain is suicide, but there are many who are convinced that Courtney Love, his wife and vocalist for the band Hulp, you know, paid to have him murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> no, that's, that's a whole mess. <laughs> it's way too long. Yeah. If you want to um, go down that rabbit hole, there are lots of, lots of uh, places to go lots yeah um after cobain's death his mother gave a quote to newsweek saying now he's gone and joined that stupid club i told him not to join that stupid club (gasps) yeah um and then a few months after cobain's death Kristen faff who is the bassist of hole she overdosed on heroin and died and was also 27 wow Um, yeah. More recently, um, in 1996, Jason Thirsk, the bassist of Pennywise, he, uh, died at 27. And of course, Amy Winehouse uh, joined the club in 2011. Oh, wow. I didn't realize she was 27. Dang. She was. Yeah. And I know he wasn't a musician, but Anton Yelnick, of course, he tragically passed away pretty recently. Um, and he was 27. Wow. 
Yeah. So according to numerology, the sum of 27, 2 plus 7 is 9. And in numerology, 9 suggests completeness. Um, you know, it takes nine months for a baby to fully develop. And um, it's also the number of initiation and the end of one stage of spiritual development and the beginning of another one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, All right. So Dave's know. birthday is September 9th. So his birthday is 9-9. Oh. Oh. So I wow. am not going to tell him that that means completeness <laughs> because he does <laughs> He does not need that information that he's no <laughs> more complete than me. <laughs> oh, goodness. Or, you know, it could just be a number of strange coincidences caused by a hard lifestyle. Um, and in the words of Neil Young, it's better to burn out than to fade away. Mm. So... Mm. That's the 27 Club. I'm sorry this is so long. I have one more story. I (laughs) love this. This is so good. All right. We're going to move now to an event that will forever be known as the day the music died. (gasps) Um. As in, as in, (laughs) bye, bye. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Yep, yep. Okay. All right. So on February 3rd, 1959, the plane carrying Buddy Holly, J.P. Richardson, also known as the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens crashed into a field near Clear Lake, Iowa. And sadly, all those aboard were killed, including the 21-year-old pilot, Roger Peterson. 21? Uh Uh-huh. I've done nothing with my life! (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So in addition to being one of rock music's first and greatest catastrophes, uh, the death of Buddy Holly is also shrouded shrouded in a strange sequence of coincidences and conspiracy theories. So um, apparently all three performers were said to have had premonitions of their death. (gasps) Uh J.P. Richardson... um, Richardson, who's also the big bopper. Uh, He started as a radio DJ for KTRM, which is a station out of Beaumont, Texas. Um, He was locally famous for hosting what they call discathons, which is where the DJ would try to stay awake for as long as possible, spinning records. (laughs) And (laughs) so these discathons would actually draw crowds at the station and they were always a really big hit. Um, and it was during one of these discathons that Richardson had his premonition. So according to fellow radio announcer Jerry Boynton, Richardson had been awake for more than three days. Um, he was completely exhausted. And Richardson turned to Boynton and asked, Jer, do you think I'm going to die soon? Um, Boynton thought it was a joke. And he laughingly told him he thought he might. Uh And so after a record-setting 122 hours without sleep, uh, Richardson was taken out of the studio by ambulance. (gasps) Yeah. (laughs) Afterwards, um, Richardson stated that during 
you know, this discathon, he had begun to hallucinate. Mm. And during one of those hallucinations, he saw his own death and that the other side wasn't that bad. Wow. So that was his premonition. Richie Valens, who was only 17 at the time of the crash. Oh, my gosh. Um, no, he was a baby. He actually had a terrible fear of flying. Um Donna Fox, who is Richie's high school sweetheart and um, the subject of his hit song, Donna, would later say he would have nightmares about that. He just had a horrible fear of small planes and planes in general. Um, and he indicated that he would never fly. Oh, uh, And for good reason, it seems, because in junior high, uh, Richie would often sit under a tree uh, on the playground at lunch and play his guitar for his stu- for the other students, his classmates. Um, but on January 31st, 1957, Richie had missed school to attend the f- a funeral service. Um, I've seen it say that he was attending his grandfather's funeral and his uncle's funeral. So I don't know exactly which is which, but he was at a funeral. Okay. Um, and so after the Valenzuela family returned home, um, they heard a large explosion that like shook their whole house. And a few miles away, a plane was spotted plummeting from the sky, completely engulfed in flames. <gasps> so the, the family jumped in their car and drove towards the site, which, why? <gasps> oh, my gosh. <laughs> but they did. Um, and they found the wreckage of the plane crash on the playgrounds of the Pacoma Junior High School. Wow. So, yeah, horribly, three students were killed in the crash. What? including Richie's best friend. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So 90 other children were injured, and Richie was convinced that if he hadn't been at the funeral, he would have died that day. Um. Well, yeah, that's... Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't mm-hmm. know if I'd ever be able to get on a plane again. Right? Wow. Okay. Oh. <sighs> <sighs> So as Richie began to get increasingly popular after uh, hit songs, Come On, Let's Go and La Bamba, um, he knew that he would unfortunately need to get over his fear of flying, uh, especially after he was asked to join Buddy Holly and many other huge artists on the tour Winter Dance Party. Um, before leaving, he attended church with his friend, Gail Smith, and another friend said he'd gone to the Guardian Angels Church and prayed for a safe journey. He was afraid of airplanes, but he was getting used to them and might even take one at some point during the winter dance party. Oh Apparently, I know, his friend Gail warned him that it was snowy and storming up north and asked what would he do if his plane crashed? And he said, I'll land on my guitar. Um, Buddy Holly, who was the headliner of the winter dance party, uh, and he was attempting to solidify his solo career because he had just left the crickets. Um, The other members of the crickets obtained the legal rights to the name and they were continuing to perform under it. Um, and oddly enough, it's said that they um, attempted to contact Holly on the night of the crash to ask if he would rejoin the band. Wow. So, yeah. 
Um, Holly had hired Waylon Jennings, who was a longtime friend, to play bass for him, and Tommy Alsip uh, to play backup guitar on the tour. Both men were from Texas. Holly really did not want to tour, especially in the middle of winter, um, but his new wife, Maria Elena, was pregnant, and he was hoping to make enough money to kind of provide a steady income for her. Um, Holly had proposed to Maria on their very first date, and when she asked uh, if he would like to wait to get her know or get to know her better, he replied, "I haven't got the time." Oh, I know. <laughs> so before leaving for the tour, both Buddy and Maria had terrible nightmares. In one of them, Maria said that she was standing in a vast open field and that, quote, I didn't know where I was or how I got there. And then all of a sudden I could hear noises like shouting and I got closer and closer. I could see all these people running, running, running and shouting, they're coming, hide. And uh, so in her dream, a giant ball of fire was falling from the sky, heading right toward her. I know. (laughs) It's creepy. Oh, boy. Uh, Yeah. That same night, Buddy uh, said that he was dreaming that he was flying in a small plane with his brother and Maria and that his brother had convinced Buddy to leave Maria at the top of a large building, promising to return and come get her. Um, Maria was, she was the one who told about this story and she said that he was crying when he was describing it because he didn't know why he would have left her there. Um, a little while later, um, buddy actually did leave Maria because she had originally planned to go on tour with him, but he convinced her to stay home because she was experiencing terrible morning sickness. So, Yeah. Um, and a year earlier when Holly was touring in England, he received a message from recording engineer and producer Joe Meek. So apparently Joe Meek had participated in a tarot card reading and claimed that he saw the words February 3rd, Buddy Holly dies. What? So yes, he immediately warned Buddy Holly, um, and after February 3rd, 1958 passed without incident, Holly didn't think about the message again because he thought, you know, well, it's done. Um, before the fateful crash of the Beechcraft Bonanza on February 3rd, 1959, oh. yep, the Winter Dance Party Tour had been wrought with hardships. So the performers were forced to travel in reconditioned school buses that kept breaking down. Temperatures reached negative 25 below zero. Mm-mm. Um, no, thank you. Drummer, <laughs> right? <Nope. laughs> drummer Carl Bunch had to be hospitalized after getting frostbite on his feet. On the tour bus? Uh, uh huh. What is even the yes. point of being a rock star? <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. Uh, they would sometimes have to travel over 500 miles in one night following a performance. So, because of this, Buddy Holly decided to make arrangements to charter a small plane to escape the misery of these school buses. Um, Buddy wanted to take Waylon Jennings and Tommy Alsup with him, 
but when the big bopper heard about the plane, he begged and begged Waylon Jennings for his seat. The bopper had the flu and he wanted to go see a doctor. Uh, so Jennings happily agreed as long as he could keep the bopper's brand new sleeping bag. <laughs> what a trade. Right. <laughs> Richie Valens, who, you know, was famously afraid of flying. He actually begged Alsip for his seat on the plane. Uh, and finally, in exasperation, Alsip pulled out a coin and told Valens to call it. Mm. And Valens won the coin toss. So he got the seat on the plane. Wow. Wow. That's, yeah. uh, that's incredibly uh, poetic. Uh-huh. So um, Alsip actually opened up a saloon after the tour called the Heads Up Saloon, you know, to kind of forever remind him of how his future was determined by a simple coin toss. Um, the crash was, of course, a terrible tragedy, but there are some who think it enacted a curse. Mm. So <laughs> a few days before the crash, Holly had called Eddie Cochran um, and said that he was afraid he would never have another hit song, that he was losing his stardom. He was never going to get it back. And Cochran told him that, of course, he was still a star. Of course, he was going to have better music coming and um Cochran was supposed to be on the winter dance party tour, but apparently the Ed Sullivan show asked if he would be on the show and buddy Holly told him that that was a much better way to get his music across was to go on the Ed Sullivan show Wow! and it would be much better for his career. So he did it. Um, and that would actually forever haunt him that he had somehow cheated death. Mm -hmm. Um, in 1960, he went on tour in England and he met, Sharon Sheely, who was a songwriter. Um, ironically, Richie Valens had met Sharon Sheely through Cochran and had recorded one of her songs before he died. Um, so Sharon said that Cochran was just severely depressed. He told her to go buy as many Bali Buddy Holly records uh, that she could find and he would just play them in his hotel room. Um, and when she asked him if it made him sad to hear Holly this way, he allegedly replied, oh, no, because I'll be seeing him soon. What? Um, yeah. No. Mm -hmm. On Easter Sunday in 1960, Cochran, Sheely, and uh, Gene Vincent were on their way to Heathrow Airport to return to California um, after playing the show. Uh, their car blew a tire, causing them to spin out of control. Both Cochran and Sheely were flung from the car during the crash. All three were taken to the hospital where a day later Cochran died from serious head injuries. Wow. Um, miraculously, his guitar, which was also flung from the car, survived without a scratch. What? Yeah. And the last single that Cochran had released before his death was called Three Steps to Heaven. And the crickets were background vocals. Ooh. So... <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Was he was he 27? No. Oh. <laughs> 27. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um so singer Ronnie Smith was tasked with replacing Holly on the Winter Dance Party tour after the crash, which sounds like an awful job. Yes. <laughs> <sighs> 
But he played with um, Jennings, Bunch, and Alsup throughout the tour and enjoyed it so much that the group continued to make music and tour together. And they were called the Jitters. Um, in 1962, Smith was committed to a state hospital for drug abuse. And on October 25th, 1962, he hanged himself in the bathroom of that hospital. Um, so it was another that was kind of touched by Buddy Holly and wow. died. Um, the original members of the Crickets, Jerry Allison, Joe Malden, and Sonny Curtis, they continued performing as a group. And they brought on 17-year-old David Box to replace Holly. Um, but Box left the Crickets to follow a solo career. And he was a regional success. He did pretty well. On October 23rd he of 1964, he hired a small plane to fly him to a show in Texas. Mm-mm. Um, yeah, he and the drummer Bill Daniels and guitarist Buddy Groves left the show and immediately, you know, went to fly back to their homes in Houston when the plane crashed, killing all three of them. Um Yes. It was just it was just not a good time to be on small aircrafts. No. No. Um Box was 22, which that's how old Buddy Holly was when he died. Wow. Um <laughs> I know there's just, there's just a couple more. Um in in 1977, the Buddy Holly story, which was a biopic about Buddy Holly's life, mm-hmm. uh was made with Gary Busey playing Buddy Holly. Um and Busey was involved in an almost fatal motorcycle accident after the completion of the film. Wow. Um Robert Gitler, who wrote the screenplay, uh, died of suicide shortly before the film's theatrical release. Um, Keith Moon, who was the Who's drummer, attended the London premiere of the film with Paul and Linda McCartney. And when he returned home, he took a handful of sleeping pills and died the next day on September 7th, 1978. And Buddy Holly's birthday was September 7th. <sighs> Um, yeah, (laughs) so there is just so much more in the strange world of rock and roll. There's, you know, hidden messages found when you play heavy metal music backwards. (laughs) Um, Leonard Skinner, their album Street Survivors was released three days before their plane crashed, killing several members of their band. And they actually had to take the album cover off the shelves because it showed the band engulfed in flames. What? And yeah. Oh my God. There's just, there's just so much. And so again, I highly, highly recommend this book if you can get your hands on it. Um, but that is what I know about rock and roll curses, myths, and legends. That was great. Wow. Wow. So that was um, forever long. <laughs> no, it's it's it was great. Um when when Dave and I went on our honeymoon, we went on an Alaskan cruise and one of like the mm-hmm. events, you know, you go on a cruise and there's like all these like little events. One of them yeah. um was uh like a classic rock trivia. 
and uh-huh. we were easily the youngest people there. Like everyone else was in like their fifties and sixties. And we were like, Oh, we don't have a chance, <laughs> but we both had fathers who were very into music and were raised on yep. classic rock. And we ended up winning. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And that was, that was like one of the highlights of, of our honeymoon was that, the youngest people in the room won the classic rock trivia. (laughs) So I'm super excited to have this to add to my little portfolio of knowledge for the next time I find myself in a trivia situation. Yeah. There's just something about classic rock. I don't know what it is. Like, I mean, I still, it's my favorite music now Mm -hmm. and I don't know. There's just something about it that like sucks you in. Yeah, for sure. So do you have some Um, book recommendations? I do. Yes. Um, So of course, you know, I kept saying it, but take a walk on the dark side, our Gary Patterson. There's so much more in his book than just what I covered. So read it. Um, He also wrote a book called the walrus was Paul. um, The great beetle death curse. Um, or I'm sorry, the great beetle death clues, because it goes into every single little clue that people picked apart to say that Paul McCartney was actually dead. Um, yeah, so it's good. There's um, a Robert Johnson biography called Escaping the Delta, uh, Robert Johnson and the Invention of the Blues by Elijah Wald, and it looks fascinating. Um, I can't wait to read that one. For general rock history, uh, the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia of Rock and Roll is pretty extensive. Mm-hmm. Um It gives full coverage to all aspects of the rock scene. Um, It tells the story of rock and roll in a clear and easy reference format. It includes discographies, personal changes for every band, and backstage information. Um, I have not read it, but uh, it is the official source of information selected by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum. So, Well, there you go. What what better endorsement (laughs) is there? (laughs) um so i actually do have um a fiction recommendation uh it's a ya book that i loved and it combines music with the occult and deals made at the crossroads it's called the devil and the bluebird by jennifer mason black it's about blue riley who has wrestled with her own demons ever since the loss of her mother to cancer But when she encounters a beautiful devil at her town's crossroads, it's her runaway sister's soul that she fights to save. So the devil, yeah, the devil steals Blue's voice, which was inherited from her musically gifted mother, in exchange for a single shot at finding her sister Cass. So that one was really good. That sounds great. And for videos, or videos, how old am I? <laughs> for VHS tapes. <laughs> VHS tapes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no, I highly, highly recommend uh, the remastered documentary series on Netflix. Um, they have episodes, of course, on Robert Johnson, but they have one on Sam Cooke. They have one on Johnny Cash, Bob Marley, um, but definitely the Robert Johnson episode is a must watch. Okay. I'm definitely going to pass that along to my dad. He, yeah. That's like all he watches. It's really 
Um, and of course, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Supernatural. That was um, all I could think about the whole time you were telling that. <laughs> so specifically, the episode called Crossroad Blues, season two, episode eight. So, so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, I haven't finished. I know they, they wrapped the series a little bit ago and I'm, I'm too scared to watch it. So <laughs> yeah, I think I'm like, I think I'm like two or three seasons behind. Okay. And now Dave and I are to the point where like, it's, it's been so long that we've watched that we're like, do we start over at the beginning and watch it all? Yeah. Or do we just pick yeah. up and it's, uh, I want to start at the beginning, but I'm like, Oh, it's going to take us I so do long. Too. Yeah. It's forever long, but I, I think I kind of want to go from the beginning. Yeah. But yeah. So that's what I know about rock and roll curses, myths and legends. That was awesome. <laughs> Yay! Oh, yeah. So good. Oh my God. I'm going to. So <laughs> the cat, this cat, I can't. Oh, <laughs> All right. So um, check out our website for our show notes and uh, the links for all of our sources. Um, the link for bookshop.org if you would like to purchase any of these mm-hmm. books. And, um, and please rate and review us time. on Apple Podcasts. Yes. I didn't realize that Apple Podcasts is like the only place you can rate and review. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's really, that's really important. If you are in any way enjoying this, please. Please uh, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us please. It helps us. us. Stars. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, uh, we'll see you next. Yeah. Week. Until next week, uh, I am going to be watching out for omens and signs and <laughs> heavily interpreting all of my dreams. So Absolutely. Thank you for that, yes. Haley. <laughs> You're welcome. Right, bye. <laughs> bye. <laughs> You've been listening to The Reference Desk. Please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're interested in any of the books we talked about on this episode, you can find them all, and more like them, at your local library. And if you'd like to purchase a book, please use our affiliate link at bookshop.org slash shop slash The Reference Desk pod. That's bookshop.org slash shop slash The Reference Desk pod, all one word. Follow us on Instagram at the Reference Desk Pod and check out our website at thereferencedeskpod.com where you can find our show notes, a full list of our sources, and all of our book recommendations. Until next week, we'll see you in the stacks.